everybody and happy Father's Day weekend to all of you. Like Steve said, we just are so appreciative of all of those who wear the title as a father in the different ways that you can wear that title. So we just are so thankful for you. Hopefully you get a chance to celebrate the dads in your life uh, today. And of course, welcome to all of you who are also joining us on live stream. Glad to have you uh, that way as well. And so very excited today, uh, not just because it's Father's Day, of course, because of that, uh, but also because we are starting a six-week series today. So for the next six weeks, we're going to be in this series that we are calling Living in Exile, Living in Exile. And uh, I am just so pumped about this series. I'm also excited because I want to say that if you're someone who is a guest here at the Medina East Campus, so it's your, your first time here, it's your first time back in a while, if it's your first time joining us on live stream, I don't think you could have picked a better week to be here. And the reason for that is because we are starting uh, this new series. And we oftentimes say here at Grace that the beginning of a new series is really one of the greatest opportunities to get connected and to kind of get involved in uh, the church. And so I would actually even encourage you and maybe even challenge you that if you're a person who's kind of investigating Grace Church and you're trying to figure out is this the church? Is this the place for you? I would encourage and challenge you to maybe lock in with us for the next six weeks as we get a chance to go through this series together. And I would give you a chance to maybe get to hear the whole conversation front to end. Uh, that would also give, hopefully, us a chance to get to know you a little bit and also would give you a chance to get to know us a little bit through that whole uh, kind of time together. So I'm very excited about that. Uh, so the next six weeks, what we're going to be doing is we are going to be journeying through the first six chapters of an Old Testament book that was actually written back in the 6th century B.C., and, uh, and I got to say that as I've been preparing and as I've been planning and praying for this series for the past few months, I am so excited for what is in store as we go through this series together. Even though the text that we're going to be looking at was uh, nearly 2,600 years ago now, my hope is that you're going to see in this series that the topic that we're going to be dealing with and the, the topics that are addressed in this book that we're going to be reading are deeply and strikingly relevant to the time and the place that we find ourselves in today. In fact, I thought just as a way to kind of start off the series, I thought that maybe I would show you uh, just a series of comments and questions. And I wanna just ask you, maybe kind of rhetorically, to see if you personally can find yourself resonating with, or maybe, you're, maybe you would even say that you find yourself saying some of these comments and some of these questions, all right? So just as a way of teeing up the series, how about this one? How many of you would say, and again, it's kind of rhetorical, but how many of you would say that you can really resonate, that you find yourself saying or thinking something like this? The values in our society seem to be changing at an alarming pace. And so I find myself sometimes anxious, angry, and or fearful of what the future might hold. 
All right, so maybe some of us would kind of feel this way, that we would look and we'd say, man, it seems like things are changing at such a rapid pace, and more specifically, it seems like values are changing at such a rapid pace that actually I feel a little bit nervous and I feel a little anxious about what the future might hold. You know, it's actually really interesting. If you just even stop and think about what the past few decades, the change that we've seen just over the past few decades in our society, like if you were just to say, let's just say the past 36 years, which some of you might be thinking, that is an oddly specific amount of time. Why did you pick 36 years? The reason I picked 36 years is because that is the span of time between the, the Top Gun movies. And so the original Top Gun, 1986, the new Top Gun just came out, which by the way, if you haven't seen it, totally worth it. It's a great movie. But uh, this is the way that I tend to chronicle time. It's through Top Guns. And so from, from the span of the first Top Gun to this Top Gun, just think about the amount of sizable shifts that we have seen within our community and with, within our world. For better or for worse, things in our society have, radical change, have radically changed. There have been seismic shifts that we have seen in some of the fundamental building blocks of society. And so, for example, the way that we understand justice, the way that we view gender, the way that we define marriage, the way that we view the family, the way that we understand human rights, the way that we understand education, there's been massive shifts in some of those things. And so some of us might find ourselves feeling this way. Or how about this one? Uh, people are divided in, unparalleled, in an unparalleled way. How do I maintain personal convictions and healthy relationships with people who have opposing views? And so for sure, no matter what commentator you listen to, whether it's a political commentator or a religious commentator or a social commentator or whoever it might be, everyone is basically saying the same thing, that we are living in a time where we are very polarized within our society. And in a lot of different ways, we are politically polarized, we are racially polarized, we are sexually polarized, we are ideologically polarized. And some of us are asking the question, how do you maintain personal convictions and at the same time navigate relationships, maintain healthy relationships with that? And that's not just an issue that we see in the world out there. For so many of us, that's an issue that lives right in our own living rooms, right? We face it every time there's a family get-together or it confronts us maybe within our own family structures, maybe with your parents or your kids or even in your own marriage. You find yourself asking these kind of questions. How do you maintain healthy relationships in the midst of a very polarized time. Or how about this one? Uh, I feel an increasing pressure to conform to the values and ideologies that I don't entirely agree with or fully understand. And maybe for some of you, you resonate with that. And I know I could just tell you personally, I definitely feel that way. I feel like right now there are so many competing and loud voices coming from so many different directions that come with a considerable amount of force that are basically saying, you need to think this way, you need to act this way, you need to believe this thing, or you need to navigate life this way. And quite honestly, sometimes I feel confused because I don't know if I agree, or I don't, sometimes I don't know if I fully understand the thing that's being pushed. And so sometimes we can be confused with how to respond to that. How about this one? What does it look like to please God in a world that seems to be ever increasing in adversity to the teachings in the way of Jesus. I think those of us who follow Jesus, and of course, um, I know that not everyone here today is a follower of Christ. Some of you are maybe still in the process of investigating Christianity and those kind of things. And, and let me just say this. We say this all the time, but I genuinely mean this from the bottom of my heart. If you're a person who's investigating Jesus, we count it such an absolute honor that you would let us be part of your spiritual investigation. We don't take that lightly at all. But for those of us who do follow Jesus, I think there's a real tension that we feel. I don't think it's any secret 
that part of what we're seeing in the seismic shifts of society is that it seems like there are further and further steps away from the way and the teaching of Jesus. And so what does it look like to honor God in a society where you see these things happening? So I could probably list a whole bunch of other things, but I think you kind of get the idea here. And, and here, here's what I'm hoping. My hope is that if you can resonate or you can if you find yourself kind of agreeing with some of these statements or even saying some of these statements at certain times, my hope is that what you're gonna see is that the Bible actually has a whole lot to offer in the way of guidance into how we navigate through these tensions. And I believe that there is no better book of the Bible to go to than the one that we are looking at together. And so what we're gonna be doing in this series is we're gonna be looking at the first six chapters of the Old Testament book of Daniel. Daniel, that's right, we're gonna be looking at Daniel. In fact, I would love to invite you right now, if you got a Bible, why don't you open it up with me and we're gonna go to Daniel chapter one, okay? So Daniel one, grab a Bible if you would and get there. Um, if you did not bring a Bible or you don't have a Bible app, you can get to Daniel chapter one on page 719 in the Bibles under the chairs. You should be able to find one there somewhere. I would encourage you to do that. Daniel is actually a pretty small book in the Old Testament. It's only 12 chapters long. And so uh, if you need to use the table of contents to find it, there is no shame in that. Okay, it's just a little book. It's kind of hard to find. So Daniel's where we're gonna go. And then let me say that if you're using one of our Bibles, if, if you've opted to do that and you don't own a physical copy of the Bible, we would love for you to have a physical copy of the Bible. So you could take that home with you and make that a gift from us to you. All right, so as you get into Daniel chapter one and as we start digging into this here together, um, I wanna give you just a little bit of background before we, we jump in. So Daniel is actually written uh, in about the sixth century BC by a Jewish man named Daniel. So Daniel is the one who also is the one who's writing the book that we're about to read. And uh, what we're gonna see is that the time and circumstances in which Daniel writes this book were very uncertain and were very turbulent and very polarizing times in the nation of Israel. In fact, I, wanna, I want you to notice how it opens up in verse one. So Daniel chapter one, verse one, it says this. It says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia to put in the treasure house of his God. All right, so let me just hit pause there for a minute and kind of explain what's going on because those two verses, the opening two verses of Daniel chapter one, they're very easy to read right through and just to kind of read past some of the details that you see there. However, I want you to notice that there is a ton of history and there's a ton of context that is alluded to and is kind of referred to here in the first two verses. So let me kind of draw that out a little bit. So I want you to notice first and foremost, the Bible's gonna say that the events happened in the third year of King Jehoiakim, who was the king of Judah. So just a little bit about Jehoiakim. He actually was the king over Judah. Judah, of course, uh, was one of the parts of Israel, which is where God's people would have been, the, the Israelite people. And uh, we actually know a little bit about Jehoiakim. Without getting into all the details, uh, Jehoiakim was actually a pretty lousy king. In fact, he was a very lousy king. Uh, he perpetually led the people of Israel in a downward cycle of disobedience and of unbelief in God. And so uh, it led the nation into a very bad place. And the Bible's gonna tell us that what happened next is that Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, a different nation, came and he came to Jerusalem and he besieged it. So he comes into Jerusalem and he sacks Jerusalem. 
Now, I just want to mention to you, if you're the kind of person who really likes getting the backstory on things, you can just write in your notes this reference, 2 Kings 24. Okay, 2 Kings 24. If you want to read about the backstory of what happened in verse 1, you can read 2 Kings 24. It's going to tell you all about the events of what took place. But here's what I want you to notice. When Daniel opens up, when the book of Daniel opens up, in the first verse, we are told this is a bad situation. Things are looking pretty bleak. For the very first thing we are told is that the Israelites have been defeated by the Babylonians. The very first thing we're told. And not only that, notice what else it says. It says, and the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into his hand, Nebuchadnezzar's hand, along with, now notice this, some of the articles from the temple of God. These Nebuchadnezzar carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia, and he put in the treasure house of his God. Okay, so I want you to, to get this picture in your mind. Back in this time, when one nation defeated another nation, it was not just a sign that our nation is stronger than your nation. Back in this time, when one nation defeated another nation, it also was a declaration that our God is better than your God. And so when Nebuchadnezzar defeats Jerusalem, one of the things that he does is he takes some of the articles from the temple, which was in Jerusalem, which is where the Israelite people worshiped God. He took some of the articles from that temple and he came and he brought them into the temple of his gods in Babylonia. Essentially, it was a way of him saying, my God is stronger than your God. So in the first two verses, here's what you're gonna see. The nation of Israel has been defeated by the Babylonians and it appears to be that the God of Israel has also been defeated. And so you have this picture that this is a bleak landscape. And so now the rest of the book of Daniel, all six chapters that we're gonna look at and even beyond to the 12 chapters in Daniel is all gonna take place in Babylon. The Israelites are going to be defeated by the Babylonians. They are going to be uprooted from their home country and they're gonna be exiled and dispersed into a foreign land into Babylon. Now, before we move any further, I need to just say something very quickly about Babylon, okay? Because actually, the word Babylon, the name Babylon, carries with it a whole lot of biblical significance, All right, So back in the 6th century BC, in the book of Daniel, the city of Babylon was a physical, literal location. Like, it was, it's actually in modern-day Iraq, and it was a, just kind of this mega city. It was a mega world power. In fact, uh, some of you might know, maybe you've heard of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. Uh, this is an artist's depiction of what those would look like. It's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. That's the same Babylon that we're reading about in Daniel. So the same, the same Babylon, the same Nebuchadnezzar throughout history books. That's the same story that we're reading about here. Babylon was an amazing city with amazing architecture. In fact, here's an artist's rendition of what the city of Babylon may have looked like. Uh, this gate right here is actually a very famous gate. It's called the Ishtar Gate. And uh, just this, it's just this beautiful city. So this was a city that was powerful, that was beautiful, and that was glorious in so many different ways. But here, here's what I want you to understand. I said in the Bible, the, the word Babylon, the, the name Babylon is used in many different ways. And so yes, here in Daniel, it refers to this place, this literal place. But you're gonna see that in the New Testament, the Babylon is also used by biblical authors as almost a hyperlink. And it's used as a hyperlink to talk about any society or any nation or any country that begins to turn away from God and begins to, begins to pursue a different way than the way of God. So for example, you're gonna see in the New Testament that the New Testament authors actually call Rome Babylon. 
which is weird because Rome is nowhere geographically close to where the 6th century Babylon would have been. In the book of Revelation, you're going to see that Babylon is used as a, short, as a shorthand way to basically refer to any country or any nation or any world system that turns itself against and sets itself up against the ways of God. So here's the point. The bottom line is this. Babylon is a term that's used in the Bible for any societal climate that is increasingly seeking independence from God and is built upon trust in human pride and in human power. And so when you see Babylon, that's what it usually means throughout the Bible. And just a quick footnote, by the way, commentators point out that the colors of Babylon in the sixth century most likely would have been blue and gold, which is very interesting to me. Can you guys think of another godless city that sets itself up? Coincidence? I think not. I think not. But, but all kidding aside, and kind of kidding, quasi, um, all kidding aside, I think here's where this becomes very relevant to us. I think if you were just, if you were just talking from, from biblical, from, in biblical terms, from a biblical standpoint, I think that it's very reasonable for us to say that the time and place that we find ourselves living in right now is Babylon. From a biblical standpoint, we are in Babylon. In fact, that is exactly what the New Testament authors are going to use to describe the situation that followers of Jesus have in this world, that we are strangers and foreigners and exiles in this land. That is all Babylonian language that the Bible is going to use. Now, I know when I say that, when I say the time and place that we are living in is Babylon. For some of us, what that does is it causes us to be, it causes us to have fear or it causes us to maybe look at the situation as bleak or as frightening or as defeating. But here's what I want you to see, and here's what I think that Daniel wants us to see. I want you to notice very carefully in these first two verses that even though Israel has been defeated, and even though the articles from the temple of God have been placed into another temple of some foreign God, I want you to notice what the Bible says in verse two. The Bible says that the Lord was the one who delivered Jehoiakim. Now, this, is, this brings out a very, very important point, which is actually a major theme throughout the entire book of Daniel, and that's this, that all throughout the book of Daniel, even in this time of exile, even in this time of Babylon, that God is the one who is sovereignly in control, that God is in control of the entire situation. In fact, God is the one who is even behind the situation. Can I tell you something I think is really fascinating? In another book in the Old Testament, Jeremiah, Jeremiah was actually a contemporary of Daniel, and he actually writes about what's happening in Daniel chapter one. And this is what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 24. I think this is a very helpful perspective. He says this, Jeremiah says, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, like these good figs. So Jeremiah has this vision and there's these good figs and there's these bad figs. And then the Lord speaks to him and he says, like these good figs, now watch this, I regard as good the exiles from Judah whom I sent away from this place to the land of the Babylonians. My eyes will watch over them for their good and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and I will not tear them down. I will plant them and I will not uproot them. I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord. They will be my people, and I'll be their God, for they will return to me with all of their heart. You see, I think Jeremiah gives us a very healthy perspective. And what Jeremiah helps us see is that sometimes God puts his people in Babylon because there's certain ways that he wants to use them, and there's certain ways that he wants to grow them. 
And sometimes it's by God's plan and it's God's design that he is the one who strategically puts his people into these places so that he can use them and that he can grow them. That's a very helpful perspective. So what happens next in this story? So check this out. So watch what happens next. So the Bible says Israel is defeated. It talks about how Nebuchadnezzar takes the stuff from the temple. He brings it into the temple of his gods. Now watch this next thing. Then the king, Nebuchadnezzar, ordered Ashpenaz, who was the chief of his court officials. Now real quick on that. Some of you have different translations, and it might say that Ashpenaz was the chief of the eunuchs. And that's actually really important. I'll come back to that here in a second. So he was the chief of the court officials, and he ordered him to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. Okay, so let me help you understand what's going on here. What Nebuchadnezzar does here is actually very brilliant. Nebuchadnezzar was actually a pretty brilliant leader. And one of the things that he did is after he would defeat a nation, rather than killing all of his enemies, which is a lot of what a lot of people did back in this time, he was very wise. And he instead would assimilate the, his defeated enemies into his kingdom. He would exile them and assimilate them. And one of the things that Nebuchadnezzar would do is he would pick out the best and the brightest of those that he had captured, and he would put them into his service. He would have them work for him. And so you can see that that's the case here. And so what kind of people was he looking for? Who was he looking for? Well, notice the resume. It says he was looking for young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve. And let me just say, if you're the kind of person when you read the Bible, if you're like more of a visual learner and you kind of need like a visual, like an illustration of like the kind of person <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar was looking for, I'm just kidding. Um, actually, you, you want to hear something interesting? Commentators will point out that who he ended up picking was actually probably teenage young men, guys who were high school age, 15, 16, 17, 18 years old. It's probably the kind of guys that he picked. And he said, I want to bring these guys into my service. So what did that look like? What, what did that entail? Well, notice the next thing. It says he was to teach them, Nebuchadnezzar was to teach them, the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, and they were to be trained for three years, and after that, they would enter into the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, and now we're going to be introduced to these four guys who are incredible guys that you're going to be familiar with for the next weeks to come. Daniel, the one who wrote Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now, I want you to just think about me for a minute. I just want you to imagine this scenario. Imagine the cultural disorientation that these young men must have been facing in that moment. They had spent their life, they had grown up in Israel. Uh, they were accustomed to worship at the temple in Jerusalem. That's what they were used to every week, going to temple and worshiping there. They would have been, their education would have been entirely through the Hebrew scriptures. So they would have been educated in the Old Testament. That's, what, that's the worldview that they would have been acclimated to. And now all of a sudden, the Bible says that they are defeated as a nation. They are plucked from Israel. They are now finding themselves in Nebuchadnezzar's courts. And I want you to notice that now the Babylonian immersion project begins. 
And I want you to notice how thorough this immersion project was. What did it include? Well, notice the first thing. It says that they were to be taught the language and the literature of the Babylonians. For three years, these guys were to learn a new language and they were to learn a new worldview. Have you guys ever read Babylonian literature? I don't know if you ever have before. You actually still can. One of the most famous pieces of Babylonian literature that we have is a creation account. It's a Babylonian creation account. It's called the Enuma Elish. And if you've never read the Enuma Elish, I can just tell you this. It is strikingly opposed and opposite to what you see in the Hebrew scriptures. And so in other words, what's happening? For three years, these guys are being indoctrinated with an entirely different way of thinking, with an entirely different worldview that is completely contradictory to what their faith has taught them their entire life. And so now they're being indoctrinated. So not only that, not only that, but the Bible's also gonna say that the king also assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. So they have to get acclimated to a new diet and they were to be trained for three years and after that they would enter into the king's service. Now, commentators will say that part of what was required to enter into the king's service was that most likely that would have meant that these four men would have been made eunuchs. And so we talked about verse three. The Bible says that Ashpenaz was the chief of the eunuchs. These guys served under Ashpenaz, which meant that they most likely would have been made eunuchs as well. Now, some of you might be asking, uh, what exactly is a eunuch? And so I'm just gonna go ahead and answer that to save you from a potentially embarrassing conversation later. And basically, here's what a eunuch was. A eunuch was somebody who would have been castrated. And so when someone served the king, the king oftentimes had a harem of wives and to ensure that there was no funny business that took place, anyone who served the king would have to be made a eunuch. Now, the reason I felt the need to tell you that is because of a story that I recently heard of an embarrassing situation that some people got themselves in. So I thought I'd tell you this real quick. It actually has nothing to do with the sermon, but it's just too good of a story not to tell. So uh, there's this youth pastor. I heard this story. There's this youth pastor, and he had some young guys in his youth group who had just come to know Jesus. So these were some young dudes who just came to know Christ and they were all fired up about being Christians. And they happened to be runners. And so they were running in a marathon together. And as they were preparing to run in a marathon, they had to pick a team name. And so uh, now that they, yeah, you see where this is going. So now that they were all fired up about Jesus, they thought, well, let's pick a Bible name. So they, do, they did what a lot of new Christians do when they're trying to pick a Bible name. They just opened the Bible and just flipped and found a word they thought was cool. And so they came across this word, eunuch. And they were like, that's a cool word. And they said, we're going to be the eunuchs. That's the name of our team. So these guys went and they had shirts printed that said, the eunuchs. And so they ran the, the whole marathon as eunuchs. And then one day they came to church and I guess they had their shirts on. And the youth pastor was like, why are you wearing that shirt? And they were like, because, you know, we were the team. We wanted to represent Jesus. We're the eunuchs. And he was like, you don't know what that means, do you? And they were like, we have no idea. And so anyway, he told them, and they ended up burning the shirts. And that's the end of the story. So. But anyway, I digress. So, so these guys would have been immersed in the language and literature of the Babylonians. They would have been made eunuchs. In any way, the point there is that, listen, any hope for them to be able to continue their faith and to grow through a family would have, been, would have been something that would have been stripped from them. And then in addition to that, I want you to notice the Bible's also going to say that in addition to all of this, the chief official also gave them new names. So he gave them new names. He changed their name. So to Daniel, he called him Belshazzar, Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. 
Now, I wanna just say something here that's very important to understand. In our society, when we think of names, we tend to think of like baby book names, right? Like we just like the way that sounds. Back in this society, names were so much more significant than that. Names were actually identity markers. They actually said something about you and they also claimed something about your God. So I want you to notice the not so subtle stripping of their faith identity that takes place in the renaming process. So Daniel, his name actually in the Hebrew language literally meant Yahweh, God is my judge. The God of Israel is my judge. And so when he came into Babylonian service, they changed his name and they changed it to Belshazzar, which means Bel protects the king. Bel, of course, was one of the Babylonian gods. Or how about this one? Hananiah was God is gracious, Yahweh is gracious. They changed his name to Shadrach. They called him under the command of Aku, who was the moon god in Babylon. Um, Mishael was there is none like God, and they must have been running out of creativity. They must have named him last because they just said, you're Meshach now, there's none like Aku. So they changed his name. And then the last one was Azariah, God has helped me. They changed his name to Abednego, which means the servant of Nebo, who was the God of wisdom, the Babylonian God of wisdom. So I just, again, I just want you to think about this. Imagine all that these guys are going through. Right? They, they move from Israel into Babylon. They're, they're indoctrinated with a new worldview, a different language. They're given a different diet. Their names are changed. They potentially, in this situation, have been have, have been made eunuchs. And I'm just saying, you know, I hear people talk about how difficult it is to live a life of resolved faith in the society that we find ourselves in. I dare say, I think Daniel and his friends have us beat. Like, I mean, like by a long shot. And yet, I want you to notice verse eight. Verse eight is quite possibly the theme, certainly of chapter one, and maybe the theme of the entire book of Daniel. Here's what Daniel chapter one, verse eight says. It says, but... Daniel resolved, but Daniel resolved. Three very powerful words, but Daniel resolved. I think what you're gonna see is what, what could have potentially become a spiritual epitaph of the Israelite people actually ends up becoming the opening chapter of one of the most amazing stories of one of the most amazing men who displayed faithfulness to God in a situation like this that he finds himself in, in Daniel. Daniel resolved. That is a powerful word, the word resolve. Some of you have different translations and might say it this way, but Daniel purposed in his heart. Some translations say it this way, Daniel said it in his soul. The idea is this, when Daniel is in Babylon, one of the first things that he does is he cements within himself conviction. Daniel resolved. And what did he resolve to do? And that's what the Bible says. He resolved to not defile himself, that he would not defile himself. Some translations say that he would not pollute himself. The idea is this. Daniel firmed the conviction in his heart that he would remain faithful to God, even in the midst of a place where he felt the pressure to compromise. He would be faithful. And notice what it says. He resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. Now, if you're anything like me, this might be a spot where maybe for some of you, you find yourself asking this question. Here's the question I was asking. Is this, why, when Daniel made this resolve to not defile himself, why, why the food and drink? Why was that the place where the line was drawn? I mean, there was a lot of things we just read about. I mean, they changed his name. 
I mean, they were indoctrinating him with this whole new worldview. I mean, part of what was happening is he was potentially made a eunuch. Why the food and drink? Why was the spot where Daniel said, nope, I can't do that. I can't go that far. I cannot defile myself. Why there? And I just got to tell you, I actually think it's kind of a complicated question. The, the short answer, I think, with certainty is this. Somehow Daniel knew that by eating the food and by drinking the wine from the king's table, that he would have been compromising his faithfulness to God. Somehow Daniel knew that was the place. But exactly why that was the case, we actually don't know. We actually don't know because the Bible doesn't tell us. Now, there's some different theories. In fact, if you have a study Bible, it might actually give you some of those theories. I'll just give you a couple of them. One theory was this, that Daniel could not eat the food and the wine from the king's table because most likely that food would have been sacrificed to idols, to pagan gods, the gods of Babylonia. And by eating that food, it would have been a declaration that Daniel was essentially saying that he now worships those gods and he couldn't do that. And that's very possible. That's very possible. Some people think this. Some commentators say, well, maybe the reason it was he couldn't eat the food and wine is because he was a Jewish man. And maybe the food at the king's table wasn't kosher. Some of you guys know this. There's tons of laws in the Old Testament that God gives certain prohibitions, dietary prohibitions about what his people should and should not eat. And so it's very possible that that might've been the case too. Here's the point. We don't really know exactly what it was. Maybe it was both those things. Maybe it was a combination of those things. But either way, here's what I want you to lean in and understand. Daniel understood that this was the place that if he was to compromise on this, that it meant compromising his faithfulness to God. And what I want you to understand and what I think is so important for you and I to see is that from Daniel chapter one, at the very beginning, Daniel made a very important decision. And it was a decision that set the trajectory for the rest of his life, a life of faithfulness to God. And what was that decision? As Daniel resolved, he resolved, I will be faithful to God. I'll be faithful to God. No matter what the circumstances around me, I will be resolved. And here's what I want you to catch. And I think this is so important for every single one of us in this room. And no matter what age you are, I think this is so important. Is that Daniel resolved, this is so key. He resolved ahead of time. He resolved ahead of time. Before he found himself in the the, the court of Nebuchadnezzar with all of these things that were being pushed upon him, we're gonna see that in the midst of that, Daniel resolved ahead of time. Before there was a book of Daniel, before the famous infamous lion's den scene that many of you maybe remember from Bible school or whatever growing up, before any of those epic moments that happen in the book of Daniel, before any of that happens, we see ahead of time that Daniel resolved, Daniel resolved. And I think there's something here for us too. I think that in the same way, part of what we see is what does it look like to live a life of faithfulness in an age of compromise? I think part of it is you have to resolve who you're gonna be and who you're gonna serve and you have to do it ahead of time. Ahead of time. What do you mean ahead of time? I mean before you go to school, before you start high school this year, before you go to college, before you move into that dorm and you enter into that scene, you have to resolve who you're gonna be and who you're gonna serve and what kind of character you're gonna have. You have to decide that before, ahead of time, before you take that job, before you sign that new contract to go down that new career path, before you pursue that, whatever it is that you're pursuing in your career, you have to decide ahead of time 
This is who I'm going to be. Before you go to work, before you step into that workplace environment where you know, you know very well the temptations that lie there, you have to decide ahead of time, before you go on that date, before you swipe right, you need to have it firmed in your heart. You have to be resolved that you know who you are and you know who you're going to serve before you go to the party, before you get married or you get remarried or you enter into a new relationship, before you retire, before you accomplish all of your financial goals and all of your career goals, you need to resolve ahead of time. You need to resolve who you will serve and who you're going to be. So I think Daniel shows us this because can I tell you something that I found in my life to be true? And my guess is you've probably found this true as well. If you don't resolve ahead of time who you're going to be and who you're going to serve, somebody else will do it for you. Somebody else will always do it for you. There are always Nebuchadnezzars. There are always, there's always someone who wants to push on you, this is who you should be and this is how you should think. But Daniel shows us a different way. Daniel was resolved. He was resolved. So, let me summarize what happens because the rest of the story is actually pretty awesome. So what happens is this, Daniel resolves, he resolves that he's not gonna defile himself. And the Bible says, so his next step is that he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now, I can't help but find this comical, all right? I don't know about you, but for me, when I read that passage, Daniel resolved that he wouldn't defile himself. The picture I have in my mind is that Daniel's like, yeah, I'm not gonna put up with any of this crap. Like, that's the picture I have in my mind, right? And so I get this idea that Daniel's just like, all right, I'm not gonna do this. I'm not gonna, you know, I'm gonna stick it to the man. So what's the first thing Daniel does? Daniel marches over to the official and he asks for permission. <laughs> you know, because Daniel's so punk rock, I'm asking for permission to not defile myself. You guys, I actually think that's really helpful. I think this is actually very instructive. I think it is. What you're gonna see is that resolve does not equal insubordinate rebellion. That's not what it means. That's not what it means in Daniel. Daniel asks permission from the official. Can I not defile myself, please? That's what he asked him. And interestingly, you know what the Bible says? The Bible says that the official is reluctant, but God shows favor and he allows him. And so what happens is Daniel basically says this. Daniel says, listen, I know you don't like the idea, but we can't eat the king's food. We just can't do it. We can't defile ourselves. That would be unfaithful to God. And so what Daniel says is this, he goes, how about this? I'll propose a plan. It's a 10-day trial period. He says, let me and my boys, he said, let us just eat vegetables and drink water for the next 10 days. He says, after a 10-day trial period, test us. And if you find that we're strong and healthy and we're everything the king wants us to be, then so be it. So look what the Bible says. The Bible says in verse 15, at the end of the 10-day trial period, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. And later it says, in every matter of wisdom and understanding in which the king questioned them, he found them 10 times better than the magicians and the enchanters in his whole kingdom. You see God show up in a faithful way when Daniel and his friends resolve themselves like this. Now, I do just wanna make a quick side statement. Some people read this passage and they think to themselves, ah, I see what the Bible is saying. Daniel and his friends ate vegetables and drank water for 10 days and they were healthier and stronger. Therefore, the point of the passage is that we should all be vegans. That's what this is saying. And I just wanna tell you, if you're a vegan, that's great, that's awesome. I'm just gonna say this, not the point of the passage. Not the point, okay? The point is not 
Vegetables are awesome. Vegetables save the day. Not the point. The point is God is awesome. And the faithfulness of Daniel and his friends to be resolved was rewarded by the God of the universe in a miraculous way. So when you read Daniel, you see this whole situation and you see Daniel and his friends live in this tension. But how do you live out faithfulness to God in an age of compromise? How do you navigate that? And for the next six chapters, you're gonna see them do that time and time again throughout the book of Daniel. So what do we take from this? What do you and I take from Daniel chapter one? Well, like I said, I think what you're gonna see each week is that as, as these men are trying to live in this tension of honoring God in an age of compromise, I think what you're gonna see is they're going to reveal to us that there is a way that we can do this. There is a way that God desires that his people live in that tension. And it actually is a little bit of a paradoxical way to the way that we tend to think. So I think for a lot of us, when we think about the scenario that we read in Daniel, and even when we think about the scenario that we see in our world, we tend to think there's only one of two ways that we can respond, just one or two ways. And the first way is this. We think that one way we could respond is that we could just retaliate. Just retaliate, just fight back. How easy would it have been for Daniel and his friends just to say, we're not gonna do this. We're not putting up with it. We're not gonna change our names. We're not gonna do this Babylonian. We're, just, we're not gonna do it. We're just gonna, we're gonna fight back. How easy would it have been for Daniel and his friends to say, we are going to retaliate with equal and opposite and loathsome force? How easy would it have been for them to say, we are going to blast King Nebuchadnezzar we're gonna defame his name socially. We're gonna drag him down on social media. We're gonna do everything to blast him. How easy would it have been for them to do that? How easy would it have been for them to say, you know what we're gonna do? We're gonna stage an insurrection and we are gonna get Israel back. It would have been so easy for them to make this nationalistic. It could have been so easy for them to do that. But can I just say, for some of us who are followers of Jesus, that's our bent. Our natural inclination is that we wanna fight back. We want to retaliate with equal and opposite in loathsome force. For some of us, our natural inclination is to hate and is to loathe the culture that we see around us and to retaliate against it with all of our force inside of us. Listen, can I just tell you, for some of us, we desperately want to see things change in this world. We desperately do. But quite honestly, maybe for some of us, that desire does not come from a place of brokenheartedness. It comes from a place of clenched fists. And I think I just need to tell you this because I think it's true. It is far too easy for human anger and for hatred to masquerade around as religious righteousness. And the Bible's very clear in James 1.20 when it says that human anger does not produce the righteousness that God wants. It does not produce that. See, Daniel could have just chosen to hate the culture that he was in. But you know what you actually see in the book of Daniel? You're gonna see that he serves it, that he prays for it, and ultimately he transforms it. So one option is to retaliate. The other option for some of us is we think, well, the only other option is to assimilate. Just, just assimilate, you just blend in. You just give in, you just cave in. That's what you do, you just kind of, this is exactly what Babylon wanted for these guys. Babylon just wanted Daniel and his friends to slowly and quietly be absorbed into Babylon. That's what he wanted to happen. Now, can I just tell you something I think is really fascinating? You guys, if you've ever read through the book of Daniel, you probably know this. Daniel is a book that is full of all kinds of danger. There is, there's danger in every chapter in the book of Daniel. And I mean serious dangers. Like next week in Daniel chapter two, we're gonna see that Nebuchadnezzar 
uh, he basically just wants to kill everybody, which is actually not uncommon for Nebuchadnezzar to do. Uh, but you're going to see it is very clear danger, right? When you get to Daniel chapter 3, you're going to see uh, a fire, a fiery furnace. That is very dangerous. Like, death is imminent in, in Daniel 3. Daniel chapter 6, the lion's den, right? I mean, that's very, very dangerous. Again, it's like, it's, 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 it's extremely, life-threateningly dangerous. But what's fascinating is in Daniel chapter 1, there doesn't seem like there's the same level of danger. Like, Daniel chapter 1, there's nothing that's, like, threatening their lives at this point. But can I just tell you, I think that Daniel 1 is trying to present to us a very different kind of danger. It's actually a more subtle kind of danger. It's dangerous in the same way that I think our culture is dangerous. And it's the danger to compromise. It's the danger of a slow absorption into the culture that we live in. And I think for those of us who follow Jesus, I think quite honestly, we maybe just need to even ask the Holy Spirit, are there ways in which... I find myself just conforming to the world around me. We see it in so many different ways. We can see it in things like the way that we spend our money, the way we spend our time, maybe our entertainment choices. There's things that five years ago, we wouldn't even dream of watching. We watch it now and we're like, oh, that's fine. It's a good story. Everyone, everyone likes that. It just shows up in the amount, amount that we drink today as opposed to what we did Five, I mean, it shows up in so many different ways. And the ideas that we start to embrace that we years ago would think, no, there's no way because of what the scripture teaches. There's no way. See, I think sometimes we think that the problem, the problem isn't that we are in Babylon. I think sometimes for followers of Jesus, the problem is that there's too much Babylon in us. I actually love the way one author, Rebecca McLaughlin, said it. She wrote this phenomenal book, by the way, that I actually would recommend that you read. It's called The Secular Creed. And in this book, it's very, very well done. She actually deals with some of the strongest and most debated ideologies that we see in our society today. Some of the confusing things and the voices that we hear, she actually deals with some of that. But I love what she says in her opening statement in the introduction. She says this, she says, examining each claim through the lens of scripture and in light of culture, we're gonna aim to disentangle ideas that Christians can and must affirm from ideas that Christians cannot and must not embrace, which is very helpful. But then she says this next thing. She says, but we must first, this is where we have to start. We must first get down on our knees. First, we must recognize that the tangling of ideas in the secular creed has been driven not only by sin in the world out there, but also by sin in the church in here. We must fall on our knees and repent. And so I think that's good. I think that maybe a good starting place is for some of us to ask the Holy Spirit to show us, are there places that we have, we find ourselves just assimilating into the culture that we see? So for some of us, we think there's only two options. We can retaliate or we can assimilate. And quite honestly, for some of you who are investigating Jesus, these are the only two versions of Christianity that you've ever seen. You've only seen Christians that hate the world and you've only seen Christians that look like the world and you've never seen anything different. And I just wanna say that if you're a person investigating Jesus, I think that that is a terrible, it's a tragic misrepresentation of the heart of God. Because I think what you're gonna see in Daniel is actually a third option. Daniel's gonna show us a third way and that's this, to eliminate, to illuminate, to stand out, to not retaliate, to not assimilate, we're not gonna fight back, we're not gonna blend in, we're gonna stand out. And Daniel is going to show us that God can use our refusal to compromise and our refusal to hate as a vehicle to glorify himself through us. I love what Daniel says in Daniel chapter 12. I think this is a great verse. He says, those who are wise will shine. I like that, shine 
like the brightness of the heavens. And those who lead many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever and ever, will illuminate like light in a darkness stand out. And what you're gonna see throughout Daniel for the next six chapters is you're gonna see Daniel do just that. Daniel does not retaliate. He does not fight back. Daniel does not assimilate. He does not blend in. Daniel illuminates. And you're going to see that he makes a difference in the world around him in amazing ways throughout the book of Daniel. And how does he do it? I think it starts here. I think it starts with a resolve. Daniel resolved who he would be and who he would serve. And he did that ahead of time. I wanna invite the band to come up. And as they do, I just wanna point out the last verse in Daniel chapter one. This verse is a little mind boggling to me. It says this. It says, Daniel remained there in Babylon until the first year of King Cyrus. Now, it's so easy to read right past that, but that's mind boggling to me. Do you know how much time elapses between Nebuchadnezzar and the first year of King Cyrus? 55 years, 55. You're gonna see in Daniel chapter one, Daniel's a young man. In Daniel chapter six, Daniel is 70 years old. And what is it that enabled Daniel to chart a life of faithfulness to God, even up until the point that he was 70 years old? I think you're gonna see it all began with a resolve. In the series, we actually wrote out this prayer. And this prayer actually serves as an outline for the entire series of what's to come in the next several weeks. The prayer is this, Father in heaven, by your power and grace, help me to be resolved. That's Daniel chapter one. Resolve to pray as a first response and not a last resort. That's Daniel chapter two. Resolve to love and obey you no matter the outcome. You're gonna say in Daniel three. Resolve to trust your sovereignty in times of uncertainty. That's Daniel four. Resolve to walk humbly in an age of pride. That is all Daniel five. And resolve to live with integrity in an age of compromise. That's Daniel six. My hope is that this will serve not just as an outline for the series, but it'll also serve as the collective prayer that embodies our church, those who follow Jesus at the Medina East Campus. So here's how I wanna end. I actually wanna end by inviting you, if you are a follower of Christ, and this is the cry of your heart, I wanna invite you to pray this out loud with me as we close, okay? So I, I, yes, I'm just get that straight, I am actually asking you to speak out loud, all right? So, so on the count of three, if you wanna make this the cry of your heart as well, why don't we pray this together out loud, all right? One, two, three. Father in heaven, by your power and grace, help me be resolved. Resolve to pray as a first response, not a last resort. Resolve to love and obey you no matter the outcome. Resolve to trust your sovereignty in times of uncertainty. Resolve to walk humbly in an age of pride and resolve to live with integrity in an age of compromise. In Jesus' name we pray.